Cabernet tends to be the sort of Errol Flynn of the great varieties. One of Australia's leading beer judges. People always ask, how do you get involved in sake and how does that connect to music? Because wine is an adventure. Conventional winemakers who just condemn all natural wine as faulty. The prestigious title of sake samurai. Looking at whiskey in more of an artful culinary way. The difference between getting good quality fresh hops, it just translates straight through into the beer. This is the Drinks Adventures podcast. I'm James Atkinson and this is the show where I speak to some of the world's most exciting producers of beer, wine and spirits and uncover trends and issues in the drinks industry today. Today on the show, we take a trip to Joadja Distillery in the southern highlands of New South Wales. Joadja has a story that is unique in many respects, not least its location among the ruins of a fairly isolated, heritage-listed mining town dating back to the 1870s. In 2011, the 1,000-acre property was purchased by Valero and Elisa Jimenez, who have since founded Joadja Distillery, a distilling venture that draws upon both their own Spanish backgrounds and the Scottish heritage of Joadja town. In a moment, you'll hear from Valero how it was that he and Elisa found themselves running a paddock-to-bottle whisky distillery on the site. As is the case for many Australian whisky startups over recent decades, Joadja Distillery may not have gotten off the ground, were it not for the encouragement of industry legend Bill Lark. The first time we set foot here was probably almost 20 years ago. We knew the previous owner through an acquaintance and we fell in love with the site. It's just under a thousand acres here, pristine bushland, a spring on the property and of course the historic site itself. And we knew that the previous fellow was keen to consider building a whiskey distillery one day. We're talking 20 years ago now, but uh, unfortunately that never eventuated. About uh, 12 years ago or so, the fellow did in fact build a whiskey distillery here before we bought the property. But unfortunately he went bust and uh, we took over nine years ago. The property was up for auction, public auction, and we were the silly buggers at the end of it signing a contract. And then of course the building itself was licensed or approved as a distillery, but there was no equipment, no water, no power, nothing at all. And uh, local government... Uh, suggested if we didn't operate it as a distillery, they could revoke the consent because this is a state heritage site and it was quite a little bit technical in terms of how a distillery could be built here. It's what they call prohibited use. Uh, But anyway, cutting to the chase, we uh, very quickly um, acquired a still and some other equipment just to hold the licence. And uh, I can tell you in the beginning it was more of a hobby than anything else. But as time went by, we realised that there were all these things leading us towards such things as the barley. Uh, of course, the spring is on the property. The true provenance, if you like, and, and also doing it in such a way that would allow nature to dictate a lot of the characteristics of the ultimate product, which is, of course, single malt whisky. But yeah, that's how we came about acquiring the property. And uh, now we're uh, obviously well on our way to producing some interesting spirits. You mentioned when we were talking off mic that Bill Lark talked you into the idea of doing the distilling yourself. Correct, yeah. So when we acquired the property, we, uh, again, local government suggested we better run it. Uh, they basically said use it or lose it. So I contacted Bill Lark with the view to get him to help us find a tenant. And after a few minutes of speaking to Bill, he insisted we make whiskey ourselves. He said there are too many omens. Arguably, some of the best barrels for maturing your whiskey are ex-sherry barrels from Spain. That's after he discovered that we happen to be Spanish. So I was born in Malaga, southern Spain, Andalusia, and my wife in particular, born in Jerez de la Frontera, which is where sherry comes from. So Bill said, if you can get these barrels in from your homeland, you're 90% of the way to making good whiskey. And I thought, look, Bill, I'm really not interested. I'm looking for semi-retirement. 
I don't want to run a distillery, I just want to find a tenant, pay a little bit of rent for our semi-retirement. How good's that? He insisted again, he said too many omens. The uh, sweetest of the sherries comes, of course, from uh, PX Grapes. Pedro Jimenez, well, Jimenez happens to be our surname as well, just spelt with a J instead of an X, but it is the same surname. And anyway, my ears pricked up, next thing I know, I'm down in Tassie picking up equipment and uh, setting up a distillery. And what's happened since then? It's gone from being a very small concern to something that you were just telling me before that you really have ramped things up a bit in terms of scale as well. Yeah, well, look, in the early days, it was more of a hobby. It was just to hold the license. I mean, we were always interested in spirits and we always knew the Scots have been using Spanish barrels for such a long time. We could see the whole synergy, the whole thing happening again at a very small level. We had a few headwinds with some of the bureaucracy, but that's beyond the scope of this conversation. The point is that that led to us wanting to up the ante and we acquired a bigger still, 2,400 litre copper pot still uh, locally. Uh, we also acquired a gin still, again, just to sort of diversify a little bit, experiment a little bit, but that was about four years ago. Then we start to, much to our surprise anyway, we start to win some awards and some recognition. And yet again, we then start to put down our barley on the property, that was about four years ago now. We start to get some recognition, we start to win awards, and then the rest is history. Uh, so the fact that people are appreciating what we're doing, of course, is very encouraging. And uh, for us, we, I mean, everyone likes an accolade and uh, uh, we're just improving our facility here, quality assurance, just pretty much everything, just really uh, ramping everything up. Now, you've obviously also started making paddock-to-bottle whiskey, which you've been able to do by growing your own barley. What was involved in that? What was behind that decision? Well, look, everything here happened quite organically, not in relation to the barley, but in terms of how things came about. We were doing a tour, as you know, we do historic site tours as well as distillery tours. And during one of the distillery tours, a fellow approached me and he said, look, why don't you grow barley on the paddock here where the orchard was? And I thought, well, look, I've been told that I can't grow barley here. It's not barley country. We're in a valley, not a lot of sunshine, too much moisture, etc. And he told me his name. He said, I've been growing barley in New Zealand for about 30 years. I can get you a crop here. And I said, well, look, come on down, show me how it's done. And of course, again, that was three, four years ago now. And so we put down our first crop end of, actually, it was middle of 2017. So it was three years ago now. And again, the rest is history. Low yielding, by the way, I have to say, we grow it organically. Now, this particular barley that we grow is not certified organic. Next year, it will be certified organic, and we're opening up another 12 or 13 acres, which will be certified organic. But the point I'm making there is that we really like the idea of allowing nature to dictate where our flavour comes from. We really believe that's, that whisky is a spirit of place. Very much like the Scots, of course, you've got the Highlands and the, all the different areas in Scotland and that you can tell anyone with a well-educated palate will be able to detect exactly where in Scotland that particular dram comes from. We want to make that statement here as well, allow nature here to dictate where our flavour is driven. You didn't seem to have a passion for distilling before this project, but did you have an interest in spirits? Well, for me, not so much in spirits on its own. I was really fascinated by whiskey. So really, we are a whiskey distillery first. Of course, we've diversified. But the point is, I remember as a child in Spain, and I was only six years old, and my father was um, loved his whiskey. And I remember all of our lives, we would always discuss how the Scots, not always, of course, they get barrels from all parts of the world, but uh, always fascinated that the Scots were coming down to Andalusia, the southern region of Spain, and taking all their barrels away. And I thought, well, hang on a minute, <laughs> that can't be right. So again, that interest in finding that flavour, which is so unique to southern Spain, and marrying it to my, uh, I'm an engineer, if you're not aware, I'm a civil engineer, and so that engineering background, and my son as well, and my daughter spent a year in Scotland, in Oban, in fact. So all of these things just coming together to say, this is really where we should be. 
and we've never looked back. So, so to answer your question, yeah, I don't come from a spirits background, but in terms of understanding the flavours, uh, access to the arguably the best barrels in the world and the engineering, um, everything just came together at the right time, like a little mini perfect storm. Getting your hands on good quality sherry barrels is becoming more difficult by the day, as I understand it, and particularly, you know, there's people talk about the issues with sulphur, taint, all that type of stuff. What's involved for you in being able to get, you know, consistency of supply of, of good quality sherry barrels? Yeah, well, we have, perhaps we have a little bit of an advantage in that being dual nationals. We go to Spain, we have family there, half of Elisa's family, my wife, uh, work in the bodegas or the wineries there. So we have a little bit of an advantage in terms of being able to communicate with the Spaniards. Uh, that's first and foremost. Second of all, of course, is making sure that we educate ourselves very well in terms of making sure we can trace those barrels. That's very difficult. And so for us, it's really all about the story of where each individual barrel has come from. We haven't gone into any technical level in terms of having anything analysed with any sort of technology. For us, it really is part of the story. It's about people. It's about people, about honesty, about uh, the story of where these barrels have been uh, managed, understanding where they've been managed. Uh, certainly, well, you mentioned sulphur. That is something that is always an issue, of course. We obviously make sure that we're doing everything we can to eliminate any possible well, basically quality assurance, just making sure that we source those barrels and that we know where they've been. You may be aware that nowadays a sh an ex-sherry barrel could be a barrel that's new, it has been maybe seasoned for 18 months or a year, that's still an ex-sherry barrel. And of course, that's not what we want. That's going to be a little bit harsh. We want something that's been maturing sherry. Well, when we talk about sherry, of course, we're talking about um, Pedro Chimenez or Oloroso. And now you've got other expressions or other sherry styles like your uh, Palo Cortado, Amontillado and so forth. So these are all different things we can look for. But the point being that making sure that these barrels come in to us with at least 10 to 15, even 20 years maturing sherry is really what we're looking for. And, and you tell me about those different, you mentioned those different sherry appellations or styles. How many of those have you got represented in your current array of barrels that you've got in there? And what are the different flavour profiles that you will get from those different styles of sherry barrels? Sure. So at the moment, we've got Pedro Chimenez and Oloroso. So sherry, uh, sorry, um, sweet sherry, which is the Pedro Chimenez, is of course all really about the sugar uh, and the caramel and the dates and so forth. Uh, you're really going to get extraction of those flavours from that sort of barrel. By the way, these are all American white oak barrels that have been maturing sherries. Now, the PX is pretty straightforward. Your Christmas cake in a bottle is the expression we always use. The Oloroso is a little bit different. The process is a little bit different. The grape varieties used, depending on the type of Oloroso, because that can vary a little bit, but the one we use is 50% Pedro Chimenez grape, 50% Palomino grape, and the fermentation a little bit different as well. And then you've got your Fino as well, which we're going to play with. Let's not go there for a moment let's just talk about Oloroso and PX that's all we're holding at the moment but we're literally this morning uh, putting an order for some other barrels I'm not going to mention them right now but uh, we're very excited we're getting some very interesting barrels uh, from other sherry styles to experiment with fairly limited ones fairly you know we're not talking about huge quantities but again for us it's always about learning I will die here learning so learning <laughs> is all, what it's all about and uh, so we're going to be experimenting with other sherry expressions, yeah. So it'll be 100% ex-Spanish sherry casks? That's it. Yep. There's not going to be any divergence from that? Well, we do have some ex-bourbon barrels. If you're asking about our particular releases here, we do have some ex-bourbon barrels as well. But in terms of um, our forte is sherry, ex-sherry, 
it's part of our heritage as well. Now, look, we're not here with a big Spanish flag. We're not here to try and take over. Uh, we're just honouring the Scottish process. This was a small Scottish town here at, at Joadja. The miners were brought out from Scotland to mine kerosene shale, and that's the link between this heritage site and why local government and state government allowed a distillery here in the first place. So we don't want to diverge from that. We want to continue to honour that. But in terms of the barrels, our forte, ex-sherry. Now, tell me about the new make spirit, though. I would assume that... You know, when you first started out distilling, you didn't have your own barley. What's been the evolution of that new make spirit? Any sort of conscious of trying to bring out a lot of that character as well alongside that sherry influence? Yeah, so uh, of course, initially we would just get commercial grain, uh, pale malt, as pretty much all others do. We didn't go for any peated expressions. We didn't really want to diversify uh, too quickly uh, up front. We just wanted to experiment, just get used, get to, get to know your stills because every still is different. In fact, these stills, you take them to Tasmania or Queensland, they're going to operate differently. So for me, it was learning about my stills. And so with the new make, the early uh, expressions we brought out, I mean, we, we're up to release number 12. The first nine were all commercial grain. Releases 10, 11 and 12 are the first of our barley. And of course, the first nine expressions, the new make spirit, pretty much pale malt, fairly simple ferments, fairly simple in terms of uh, how we manage that. I've got to go one step back. Remember, we're not geared up like a lot of the newer distilleries that have got a lot of very fancy gear. We don't have PLCs, we don't have data loggers, we don't have, even our mash tun's not jacketed, we can't do protein rest. We, there are lots of things we can't do here. And so for us, it was always about knowing that we couldn't get that consistency, but using that to our advantage, knowing that every mashing and every distillation was an experiment. And so we really, le or I learned a lot about the distilling process by really playing around with the stills a lot. The inconsistency in our earlier expressions tell that story. Now we're starting to understand where we want to go, so I'm really, really honing my skills and making sure I can get consistency in our new make. Of course, I'm not going to tell you everything. No. I'm no better or worse than anyone else. I'm just saying that I have my own style about how I do it and uh, we'll then start to get more consistency, but it really now becomes more about the barrels and how we manage the barrels. And of course, I have to say another a little disclaimer here. Don't forget that not all our expressions are paddock to bottle. So there are, um, we can only grow so much barley here. And so in the near future, I can say probably 10% of our releases in the whiskey range will be paddock to bottle. The rest will be, of course, commercial grain. And there's not going to be a day where you'll have enough grain grown on site to be able to supply 100%? Not on this paddock because we only have 1,000 acres, but there's only really what you see in front of us today which is about 23, 24 acres where we can grow barley successfully. We do have more properties up on the plateau, but that wouldn't involve a lot of investment. We do have some local growers emerging. We have a neighbour not far from here, literally five to 10 kilometres as the crow flies, who's putting down, I think, somewhere between four and 800 acres of barley, almost exclusively for us and maybe a couple of the local brewers as well. So that's going to be interesting. We still keep it in the Southern Highlands if we can. But to answer your question on this property, only about 24, 25, 23 acres of barley. Still, still get it um, in the order of 10 to 15 tonne of barley, which is enough to make quite a lot of whiskey, but not enough to make the full capacity that we have here now. Sure. And you mentioned before that you would certainly be classified as genuine paddock to bottle. How would you differentiate that between some other producers that might say they're paddock to bottle but might not 
be able to claim it in the same way that you can. Again, I mentioned to you before, the only step we don't do here at the moment is the malting process itself. We will soon, we are going to prepare for that, but we do everything from sowing it, in other words, I do it, um, me, the distiller, I put the barley down, I look after it, I keep the wallabies off it, I keep the wombats off it, I harvest it, I then send it, I actually physically drive to near Griffith, Voyager Malt do our malting at the moment, they process it or do the malting for us, I pick it up, bring it here, process it here. The only step we don't do, as I said, is the malting, everything else we do. Then the other thing, of course, is the, the spring. So the spring's on our property. It's not next door, it's not rainwater, it's not tank water, it's not bull water, it's not creek water. It's a proper spring coming out the side of the hill, water that's probably been filtered for God knows how many thousands of years through sandstone and other material, cleaning it up. Again, that's on our property. The paddocks that you've seen here are on the property and I do all the work. That's what I would class as true paddock to bottle. Again, I'm not here to put anyone down. I mean, uh, by definition, all whiskey is paddock to bottle because it starts in a paddock. But when you're going to say paddock to bottle, it really should be your own paddock. And just tell me about the release schedule because you mentioned you're up to release number 12. Are we talking single casks or are we talking vatted releases? Yeah, at the moment, certainly vatted. In the earlier expressions, there were one or two that were single cask. We did get some gongs for those. One of them was a single cask, another one was a cask strength. So that was single barrel releases. But now, of course, that was because of the earlier days were still fairly experimental. Now we're talking about much larger quantities. I'd rather not probably talk about the actual quantities we're putting down now, but we're putting down some substantial quantity of whiskey. So within the next six to 12 months, we're looking at potentially dropping the release numbers as well. So what'll happen is, uh, and I'm just speculating here at the moment, that some of the expressions will be numbered, more than anything, the ones that are paddock to bottle. And then, of course, we'll have a line, which will be the commercial grain. Nothing wrong with that whiskey. It's probably going to be the same. It could be better. But because, of course, it's cheaper to produce because it's commercially available grain, that will be more, not, not generic, that's the, the wrong word, but more our signature PX expressions, which is what everyone's after, uh, that will, will start to drop off the uh, release number have just the signature releases being the paddock to bottle and then everything else, no release number, just the quantity. And that's just about trying to get a consistent house style that people can expect from those exactly releases? Exactly right, yeah. So, yeah. Th so that's one of the things that, I mean, we, we don't want to be jack of all trades, master of none, but certainly we know that we want to be very picky about certain releases and say, look, this is what this land produces, for better or worse, and then you've got the other line which will be more consistent. So larger quantities, we can do larger vattings that of course give us consistency over time. And again, most of that will be PX and Oloroso. So there'll be basically two lines, PX, Oloroso, and then you'll have the paddock to bottle, which will be smaller quantities. But in my opinion, they're the ones that are really going to be wanting to show off the paddock to bottle expressions the barley here gives us. I don't think I've shown you yet, but when we go back inside, I'll show you the harvest from last year. We had a drought here, the grain not as plump as the previous year, but still able to produce quite interesting flavours and, and it'll certainly ferment right through, no problem. But the point is that, again, all of these different vintages, if you like, a little bit like the wine industry, they have their different vintages, we can sort of do a little bit the same and it's really quite quirky the way sometimes you have a grain that has suffered, it's not high yielding, it's not ideal for us, but it will have slightly different characteristics than, say, a nice, big, healthy, plump grain. So that's where we're just really having fun with it. 
with those releases, you, you want to celebrate those differences, don't you? So Very much so. So without mentioning brands, you've got some of the big whiskey brands that really succeeded in the old, you know, a couple of hundred years ago, 150 years ago, succeeded because they could deliver consistency. For us, we found that we really want to stay away. Not, not that we don't want consistency, of course we do. And that, I've mentioned that before, we'll be doing that with our larger battings, but with every year being different, you know, I mean, look at the beginning of this year with the fires and then we had floods down here. Last year we had a drought. That should be reflected in every year that we release new products. Uh, you can taste that in the product itself. It tells a story, every dram should be a story in itself. You don't want a repetitive idea, this is the same. Certainly we'll be able to cater for those who really love our PX expressions, our Oloroso expressions. We can cater for that, but then, again, isn't it fun that every year you can say, oh, look, this year we're going to try this one because two years ago or three years ago or four years ago there was a bushfire. You can taste the smoke taint from the bushfires, for example, etc., etc. So every release should have its own story. What's year been like for you guys? Because I know that you would have been definitely affected, your trade would have been badly impacted by the bushfires. And then, of course, we've had this next wonderful thing called COVID-19. So what's the last 12 months been like for the business? Well, it's been pretty difficult in the sense that we do rely here fairly heavily on weekend trade. So the last six months in particular have been awful, maybe seven months. So since December last year, yeah, six months, uh, pretty much non-existent uh, in terms of the trade coming to the distillery door for tours and tastings and, of course, purchasing product. In terms of production for us, it's been a little bit funny because we've actually, or I, I personally have benefited a little bit because given that I haven't had to man the distillery or the cellar door so often, it's given me more time to really plan things out carefully, tidy up some of our technology for lack of a better expression. And also I have put down a, a fair amount of product as well, a lot of whiskey. Also the gin's going very well. So in terms of my production, it's been good. In terms of revenue, non-existent. So I've been having to dip into our savings to fund that. And so we're just hoping, fingers crossed, that you know things we, we come out of this terrible period ready to, to do battle and uh, and start to recover a little bit. But it, it has been pretty awful. What's your distribution like outside of the cellar door? Okay, pretty minimal. We've done that deliberately simply because we are really wanting to hold back. And of course, we're, we're maturing a lot of whiskey. And rather than go out and really start to push when we may have some limitation in terms of some of the products we have, we're holding back. So we're still very early stages. I can tell you that um, within about 12 months, there's going to be a little mini explosion of uh, Georgia products. <laughs> so it has been deliberate. So we haven't gone out to the market very aggressively. We've been more reactive than proactive. So as we have been approached by some resellers and wholesalers and even distributors, we have sort of put the brakes on a little bit. We're very keen to do business, of course. We wouldn't be here if we weren't, but the lack of inventory has been a little bit restricting. And so that's why I can assure you within the next, certainly in the next few months, you'll notice us really starting to ramp up the visibility of the brand, our brand development, our brand recognition. Because look, our gin's doing really well. I mean, you know, we've, uh, I'm going to give you a little scoop here, James. <laughs> um, late last year, the Governor of New South Wales, Her Excellency Margaret Beasley, commissioned us here at Joadja to prepare a gin as official gift of Government House in Sydney. We've already delivered that and in fact, Her Excellency, the Governor was here on the 13th of February to visit us with Mr Wilson and we gave her a tour of the distillery and a tour of the historic site of course as well. Um, so, you know, and that's a slightly different gin. We did that with uh, five botanicals, New South Wales botanicals, not exclusive to New South Wales, but the botanicals, native botanicals that grow in New South Wales, yep. plus more traditional ones as well. And uh, our own gin, of course, double medal winner 
uh, and I think we've only entered it into two competitions anyway. So uh, the point I'm making is we are making products that people are appreciating. A lot of the gym bars are really fighting to try and get some product and we're ramping up production with a new still, uh, sort of upgrading our distillation capacity in terms of the clear spirits like vodka and uh, gin and uh, liqueurs and other things as well. Your whiskey, when I saw the pricing structure, it was sort of up in that you know premium Australian whiskey price bracket. Mm. Is that where you see yourself staying, or with this increased volume, do you want to try and have some slightly more accessible price? Yeah, products? that's a really good question. So, with price point, which is price point is really important, um, we are governed by the market. Our whiskey. Again, it's a little bit different, it's a little bit unique, it's not the best in the world and it's certainly not the worst. But for us, the fact that we had limited stock, obviously we can just keep that a little bit buoyant. Frankly, some of our whiskies, given that they're cask strength and they're quite unique whiskies, the price point that we've got them at the moment, in my opinion, is probably a little bit low, in fact. There is some scope for us, in fact, to even you know, push them up a little bit, but I really want to keep a one in front of it, I don't want to put a two in front of a 500ml bottle particularly car strength. So to answer your question, again, it goes back to what we discussed before. Some of our, let's call it premium whiskies, the rare whiskies because of the, uh, the terroir and the, the provenance and so forth, there's going to be less stock, uh, less supply. Obviously, the price is going to be held a little bit. But we do want to start making sure that we make our whiskies more accessible because, we, number one, we will have more stock. Uh, that we can move and number two we really want to showcase it we want to let people know hey we exist and we can make a really good products here and uh, we really want you to share it so two-pronged answer we'll still keep pushing for high-end whiskey rare whiskey and keep those prices where they are and then of course the larger quantities from commercial grain the economies of scale come into play it costs us a little bit less we can pass that on and get more people getting to know that joe is here Fantastic. Well, I hope that Joage is a name we're going to hear a lot more of in the future of Valero, and I know you're very busy today, so I'd better let you get back to whatever you were doing before I got here. Great. Thank you, James, for coming out here. Cheers. Thank you. The Drinks Adventures podcast is produced by me, James Atkinson, with additional production and mixing by Dave Robertson. You can find complete transcripts, links, and other information on the show at drinksadventures.com.au. You can follow me on all social media platforms at by James Atkinson. Like my Facebook page, James Atkinson Drinks Adventures, to be kept informed of podcast giveaways and other news about the show. The Drinks Adventures podcast needs your support as listeners. Please do us a favour and leave an honest review and rating for the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. We love hearing your feedback and it helps inform other people that this is a show worth listening to. Or simply drop us a line at hello at drinksadventures.com.au.